Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we have baseball actually back in in the thick of summer, uh, summer camp as they're calling it, which is so so strange to see. But even if uh, my Mets were beaten by the Yankees last two days, it was still nice to have a little baseball discourse. Uh, after so long and and, uh, without further ado we're we're going to go back to the 1950s and and Carl Erskine the uh, the great Dodgers pitcher of that era is here to help us kind of delve deep in some of the the details of those dog days of summer back then Carl as always thank you for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast thank you Sam always a pleasure to speak with you and as you say baseball has been on the shelf and now, now, finally, I think we're going to hear the crack of the bat. Were you able to watch anything over the last few days? Have you have you been able to see this new weird, <laughs> new form of baseball without these with these baseballs rolling down the bleachers? I have not been watching a lot of that. I've been listening for the some of the finals. They've been talking over time about when to to uh, open the season and when not to. It's been just in limbo for so long. The interest has kind of faded a little bit. When is going to happen? Because it's like, uh, you know, like tomorrow? No, it's not going to be tomorrow. But now we are to tomorrow, I think, uh, this week. 23rd, is that the date? Yeah, something around uh, 23rd, 24th, uh, depending on the team, I believe. And it, it's amazing, you know, it's the only sport that really is daily basis. You know, sometimes, of course, we, we were talking, I think, at some point about how they have basketball occasionally back-to-back days. Uh, but really, baseball is the only one that is played on a daily basis. And for us rabid fans, that's what we love about it, the fact that we get to, to forget that loss or remember that we hack in the glory of that last win because less than 24 hours later we have another game and that that's one of the glaring things about this you know summer during covid is because baseball has it went from completely uh, a daily process of everybody's lives to not there at all not only that it's been over so many decades that uh it's it's intertwined with people's lives the date that their kids are born was the same date that somebody hit the big home run or it was intertwined all along, and the mail that I still get, amazingly, from baseball fans, they write me now at this lockdown period, but they write me and other players and to get the feeling that baseball has not gone away. And uh, almost all my letters from fans uh, allude to some way that this is a connection that I'd like to make because it makes me feel good that baseball is still alive. <laughs> so so even at 93 years old, people are writing me about uh, games that happened in the 1950s, and amazing. it's just an amazing thing to me. Uh, and, yeah, you know, that's, that's, with people having time, you know, being home, uh, obviously some of them were uh, on their laptops at work technically, but they had a little bit more time out of their their daily process to to uh, 
you know, like you said, it went from like three to five letters a day to 20 to 40, you know, people were there and you know what, I'm, I'm, I think I need to write Carl. I think I need to tell him what his career and what that era means to me. And, and with, with, with that, I, I'm, I'm curious about this angle of that era. And when, when I uh, um, asked you about this podcast in terms of players' lifestyles, the first place you went to was the reserve clause. Um, so in terms of the, the idea of what players' lives were like uh, outside of the, the field, outside of what was actually happening on the field, uh, the, the different types of lifestyles that, that happening, how did the reserve clause affect that element of it? Well, you know, the reserve clause has taken a beating uh, on the sense that uh, the uh, reserve clause tied a player to the club that signed him forever. There was no exit clause of any kind. But I take another slant on that. The owners back in the 20s and earlier and all the way up through the 30s and the 40s, franchises weren't that uh, solid. And if it hadn't been for the reserve clause to keep the stars on the in, in the city that sort of owned them or felt like they they belonged to them, I think the reserve clause saved baseball in some ways because the franchises were not that solid back in the 20s and 30s, even in the 40s. So I, I like to think that the reserve clause played a good purpose as as well as the feeling that you can never be free. But I'll tell you what, players in my era, we were so thankful to be in the major leagues. Uh, as my my wife often has said, Carl would have paid to play in, in the big leagues. <laughs> Don't worry about how much you get paid. He would pay to get to play. Well, there was a feeling that it was such, it's such a rare experience to make the, the major leagues. But the thing that's so different about baseball, if you want to pick out one thing that was really more of an impact than any other, one-year contracts. All My whole career, managers and players played on one year at a time. Walt Alston, Hall of Fame manager, managed the Dodgers for, I think, 24 years all on one-year contracts. And people today, younger people, they, they can't really imagine that with the multi-year contracts and free agency uh, that's come in over the years. But but the single one most impact, I think, you couldn't buy a house where you – I played in Brooklyn for 10 seasons. You wouldn't dare to buy a house in Brooklyn to live on a one-year contract <laughs> so young people today ask a lot of questions about what it was like back then well what it was like was a one year contract and believe me the minor leagues were big and if you faltered at the top you, you got sent out it was um, it was a very competitive not that it isn't today but if you got a 5 8 year contract it's a lot different going to bed at night and go on a one-year contract, and you're having a tough season. Uh, it, the right. pressure, the pressure was was on. 
So in terms of uh, the renting, you know, it, it, you famously lived in Bay Ridge with many other players as well. So what what was the process for you? Who did you rent from? What, what, what were the details of that? Well, Duke Snyder first found a, found a place. This is something you fans uh, wouldn't understand of that era. We had to go into the city that we're playing. In our case, it was Brooklyn and find a place to live before we could bring our families uh, to the, to New York. Uh, that was a, a process. Now, the club didn't help us much either. You had you had to go on former players where they'd lived, who, the contacts. Well, there was a contact with a lady named Mrs. Grace Coughlin. She lived on a little uh, Lafayette Walk in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. We made contact with her. And we got arranged to come in, and she was so um, accommodating because she could go to her sister's in, I think, Saratoga, and uh, she would make her place available whenever we got there in the spring. And if we'd happen to play in the World Series, which we did five times, uh, she would extend our stay until we were ready to leave. It was very flexible, but a lot of guys would have to lease a place. And when World Series came along, uh, their lease might run out. Now they got to scramble to find a place to live during the World Series. Those were the behind-the-scenes stresses that the players dealt with. But Mrs. Coughlin hmm. uh, made it very easy for us she would stay till we were ready to arrive in the spring, and she would leave, and she'd say, whenever you're ready to leave in the fall, I'll just come back with my sisters. So that was ideal. Now, Pee-wee lived in Bay Ridge, Duke, uh, Preacher Row, uh, Rube Walker. So we carpooled into the ballpark, uh, and uh, that was just a routine that existed. And uh, hmm. So the the one thing that we were totally surprised about, Betty and I and our two little boys, uh, when I was called to Brooklyn in the middle of the fifth 48th season, uh, we we had a kind of a shock preparation going to the big city. But we found out that the neighborhoods in Brooklyn were like small towns. Uh, you got right, to know yeah. uh, everybody uh, at the grocery, the bakery, the the barber shop, uh, <laughs> the cab stations—you uh, got to know the. And it was—it was just like uh, a small community, uh, people knowing each other. And uh, I always—if if I pitch a, a good ball game, uh, I come home to Bay Ridge, and the kids and the neighbors all had balloons in the trees, and they were doing a street dance, and, <laughs> and, and they just. They just, you know, they just embrace us like uh, we we always lived there. And um, so my memories of Bay Ridge, away from the ballpark, uh, are very fond because we got to know people. Mr. Keogh. Mr. Keogh lived in the, the same block. And my boys would play uh, with these Spalding, uh, real bouncy rubber balls. And they'd hit them with a broomstick, and they'd go on the, the roof. They'd go up on the flat-top roof of of the buildings. And so Mr. Keel was a key guy in the neighborhood, 
to retrieve all those Spalding balls. <laughs> and so uh, the two sponsors that we always had was a cigarette sponsor and a beer sponsor. And so if it was Old Gold and Schaefer or whatever, I'd get a carton of cigarettes a week and I'd get a, a case of beer a week. I didn't use either one of them. I came to Mr. Keogh. <laughs> Mr. Keogh was the happiest neighbor in the, in the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, and and I want to go down uh, the the rabbit hole of fan, you know, uh, Bay Ridge fanfare in a little bit too, as well as some of the uh, the the smokers and drinkers of the uh, of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and kind of get some some other angles of lifestyles in Brooklyn of the players. But we actually have some phone calls, Carl. And uh, we're, we're going to first start with what I believe is a, a, somebody from Brooklyn right now, um, and that is a 718 area code. Hello, you are here on the Bedford & Sullivan podcast. Hello? Hi, 718 number, are you there? Are you speaking with me? Mike, is this Mike LaColant? Yes, it is. I called just to listen in to Mr. Carl Eskin. I didn't cue into the show, but now that I'm here, hello. And Mr. Erskine, it is an uh, an honor and a pleasure listening to you speak with Sam Maxwell. Well, thank you very much. I uh, I'm very I'm very fond of my memories of Brooklyn. In fact, just recently, well, it's been a year and a half maybe. Uh, I had a great granddaughter born. That my grandson said, if I ever have a daughter, I'm going to name her Brooklyn. So I have a great granddaughter named Brooklyn. <laughs> That's how my feeling is about uh, that borough in New York. Well, I'm going to ask you to elaborate and expand upon that. I I am a native New Yorker, uh, raised in Brooklyn. I'm 53, uh, and except for you know military experience and and living in. Uh, my father's former country for a little while taking care of grandma, uh, you know, this is what I know and this is what I love. My question to you, obviously baseball uh, is populated by uh, people from all over the country. And it's my experience from listening to anecdotes and interviews, etc., that once they step foot in Brooklyn, somehow they never forget it they develop a, a tremendous fondness for the place. So I would ask you coming from, I, I believe, Indiana, what makes Brooklyn so alluring and unforgettable once you leave? Well, I think uh, there's some obvious answers to that. Number one, my wife and I got surprised to find that uh, Brooklyn neighborhoods were like small towns. The the neighborhood we we got to know the barber and the butcher and the, and and it was one one particular character named Abe Myerson. Abe Myerson ran a deli near our house in, in Bay Ridge. And whether I won the game or lost the game the night before, Abe Myerson was at my house with two bags of deli groceries, and he said, "Carl, here." I said, well, I gotta pay you for. No, you can't pay. No, you shouldn't pay anything for. for you want, you're our team. Well, <laughs> you know, after a while, you got this feeling that these people really were genuine about their affection, and they admired players 
neighborhoods would celebrate. Uh, what, I don't know if I just said this or not, but I told somebody recently that I'd come home after pitching a, a good ball game and they'd have a street dance, <laughs> balloons in the trees. and uh, So it was a, a very fond connection. It really was a love affair. And so that's why it's lasted all these years. I still get lots of mail. And a lot of them are from Brooklyn people who may be scattered around the, the world, but they still have roots in Brooklyn, and they write to me about that era. So th- that's that's why a kid from Indiana had made such a connection with the borough of Brooklyn. And, and uh yeah, thank you, Mike. And, and another thing, too, what's interesting, uh, before we bring the next caller on, I, you were talking about, you know, renting, uh, but, but Gil, and I'm not sure when Gil ended up buying in, in Brooklyn, but, of course, you know, Gil ended up, uh, uh, Gil Hodges, of course, everybody, uh, ended up marrying a Brooklyn girl. And, and that's one of the, the reasons why he ended up buying, because he, he knew he wasn't going anywhere. Well, that's true. Uh, and that was a big event that uh, Gil, not only, uh, he's from Indiana, I know him well, same scout uh, recommended both of us to the Dodgers, but uh, him living in Brooklyn uh, was just a, a connection that nobody else had. We all came back to our hometowns at the end of the season. Uh, we were all on one-year contracts, uh, so unless you had a condition like Gil marrying a girl there, you would never buy a house in Brooklyn on a one-year contract. But um, that was one of the things that the Brooklyn fans, I always remember Gil had such a tough time in a 52 series, I think it was. I think he went 0 for 21 or something. And so starting the next season, he still had uh, this carryover uh, period where he couldn't get he couldn't get many hits, so at the Catholic Church where Gill was a member, uh, I remember one May day it was reported that the, it was a hot day and no air conditioning in the church, and so the priest said, look, go home, uh, say your prayers, and say one for Gill Hodges. <laughs> Sure enough, Gil broke out of the slump and had a big year in '53. Yeah, it's such such a legendary story, and um, someone else who's caught up with both uh, both sides of Dodger lore—that's Brooklyn and Los Angeles—I believe—is on the line. And uh, please, with the six three zero area code, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, my name is Rob Barnes. I'm from Chicago. I'm a big uh, Dodger fan. I met Carl at two Dodger fantasy camps. I'm the trombone playing Dodger camper. I hope you remember me, Carl. Yeah, maybe do. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. We. Uh, I, had, I did 46 the... camps. I I remember a lot of you campers. <laughs> you were very fortunate. I was fortunate to share two of them with you and your wonderful son, Jimmy, and it was just literally the experience of my life, and it's, I just wanted to call and say I've enjoyed following you over these years, hearing you on Sam's uh, podcast, and hearing you uh, relegate your stories from the past that just are just amazing. And I have a quick question for you. Speaking of that same book, 
Uh, there's a book called Praying for Gil Hodges by Thomas Oliphant. I'm in the middle of reading it. And in, in reference to 1951, he mentioned that during, uh, during the, the stretch run when the Giants were making up all that ground and they were obviously stealing signs with, with the camera system, uh, the author mentions that some of the teams, some of the Dodgers were uh, aware of that. Were you guys aware of that, the fact that the Dodgers had the, had the spy in center field at, at the polo rounds? Well, I'll tell you what the clue was. We did have a suspicion. And what's ironic about that, we never, we never called out anybody on it. But on the bench mm. in the polo grounds, uh, looking straight towards center field, the, the Giants clubhouse was in that direction on one side, and the other side was the, the visitor's dugout, or excuse me, clubhouse. But the, the window in that clubhouse for the Giants was always up about, oh, 10 inches or so, just a small amount. It was dark behind that window for looking toward it. But we always had a suspicion, and ironically, it was Branca on the bench who often said, I bet these so-and-sos are cheating mm. from that window. But we never called the umpire. We never... If we'd have looked closer, and even Frillo in right field, he was out there close to the Giants' bullpen, and that's where the the wire was run from that window area where they had a telescope, a buzzer system to the bullpen. It, you'd have to go over close and look to see all that, but I'm surprised mm-hmm. somebody didn't check it out. But we did, in fact, say often, I'll bet these so-and-sos are cheating through that window in the clubhouse. So mm-hmm. it was suspected, but we never called it out to have the umpire check it, or we didn't go that far. Sign stealing was certainly a, an art in itself in baseball. But there's a legitimate, uh, unspoken kind of uh, understanding that if a catcher sloppy with his signs or a player at second base can figure out what the, the system is and relay the signs, that's all a part of the game. But there's never been before those instances where they found cheating with, uh, like the Astros did recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. There's no rule. There's no rule written about stealing signs other than on the field of play itself. So there really was no violation of a rule because there was no rule about mm-hmm. – uh, we always thought the Cubs had the ideal way to cheat through the uh, score, scoreboard. The scoreboard in Wrigley Field is straight away center. And in the old days, in our era, it was uh, manually handled – it was manually each inning would drop a zero or a number of runs that were scored. It was That was done by hand. But all the spaces in the inning that are marked uh, was blank. And we often said straightaway center field. The Cubs, the Cubs could be stealing signs right through the scoreboard. <laughs> but well, nobody ever checked it out. Yeah, we never, we never well, checked prob- it out. Probably because they didn't make the series in 45. 
Well, that, that was true. Uh, what was my point was uh, sign stealing, however you could do it, was just part of the game. But it was never imagined that uh, electronically you could <laughs> find a way through the TV coverage or something that you could uh, actually uh, get the signs. That was mm-hmm. never so. There was never a rule written. I'm not sure there is one yet. There, there might be uh, dealing with sign stealing other than on the field itself. And uh, so, when the Giants in '51 uh, had that big run and caught us and beat us in the playoff, uh, that that was happening. Other places, I'm sure, wherever it was, uh, the opportunity presented itself. But um, it was never written in the rule book uh, covering sign stealing some mechanical way or through TV or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure the rule committee. I'm not sure how that's been handled. Well, I think hmm. I think just because at this point, uh, just because of the the hoopla with the electronic sign stealing. Which ironically, uh, the MLB uh, feed last night had the uh, Game Seven of the World Series last year on. So, it, you know, we were thinking about this with the Astros facing the Nationals, and um, yeah, I think I think at this point, Carl, there should be something that, you know, there's nothing against, and I, I even think, and Rob, maybe you can help me with this, that the the uh, Manfred has even stated as such that that there you can always uh, uh, be. Um, you you can always on the field, you know, do what's right to to get you know the 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 up and up on the other team. Uh, but in terms of what the Astros were doing specifically uh, with the electronic sign stealing, having a video system that that MLB is not privy to, that the Astros I think had their own little camera feed going uh, specifically with that. That was that was deemed illegal based off of whatever the rules do say. Yeah, that's, I'm actually, let's see what they say. Well, you know, In, sign stealing, uh, sign stealing was always a part of the game. And who knows how many other clubs have found some ways to uh, to catch us, to catch us signs other than uh, being on the field itself. And in a new electronic age, <laughs> a lot of things are possible. Yeah. Never dreamed would happen. So yeah, they. I think the one of the biggest things they've had to deal with are, are the iPads and um, uh, like the Apple Watches. Even was a scandal at some point over the last three years. So, uh, you know, I think baseball in general has probably done a poor job of keeping up with this uh, ideas with these these basically like same thing with the steroid era. Uh, uh, you know, just not being ahead of the, the curve with it. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we're talking about 1951, uh, and, of course, Don Newcomb was, was on the mound for that game three. And I was just reading how, uh, going, going to 1956 and just throughout Don's career, he kind of got dogged as a choker, even though he was a big reason why, uh, from a pitching perspective, why they were they they uh, got to why well, you guys got to the World Series? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Don Newcomb and and, and in terms of even uh, lifestyles, uh, uh, you know, 
in terms of if if there were some hidden demons and and whether the the uh, uh, the press about him you know not holding up uh, uh, under pressure if that got to him ever. Well, that's uh, that's a hard place to go and try to read what was actually happening. I played with Nuke for I don't know eight seasons, nine seasons. He was gone a couple of years in the army, fifty-two and fifty-three. And your point's well taken that uh, he got us uh, often to the World Series with his play during the season. It's one of those things that happens in sports that you can't explain. Well, why wasn't he that strong in the World Series? Well, Kershaw is fighting the same battle, uh, not having a good postseason record or hasn't had in the past. And uh, Nuke, you got to realize something about Nukem. He was one of the very early black players, and it was difficult for Jackie had already broken the, the color barrier, and Campanella had come up the next year. That was 47 for Jackie, and then, Nuke, and then uh, Newcomb didn't come until 49. He had a little more difficulty dealing with being one of the early black players, and I think that dogged Newcomb uh, a lot. Why it carried over into the World Series? He had a couple bad, bad breaks. I saw him get beat one to nothing in his first World Series game in, in '49. Uh, Tommy Hendrick hit a home run at the bottom of the ninth, I think it was, maybe the eighth, <clears throat> and he got beat one to nothing. Uh, he, he just had a, he got snake bit in the World Series. Um, he had Barra struck out a couple times and uh, a foul tip. And the next pitch, Barry hits a home run. And he just seemed like he just got snake bit. But um, new, we went to Japan in 56 to play a goodwill tour. And Nukem got hit pretty hard by the Japanese uh, all-star team. Uh, and he finally quit uh, pitching in, on that trip because uh, he, he wasn't getting anybody out. So... Those are mystery things that happen in a game that it's hard to put a finger on. Uh, Certainly Newcomb, I think, is a Hall of Fame candidate. Now, he didn't win 200 games, but he was a player that came out of the Negro League, and several of those star players in the Negro League uh, are in the Hall of Fame in a a special category. So I asked Newcomb one day, uh, way after our careers were over, I said, Nuke, why don't you uh, talk to somebody? Hey, Carl, are you there? But anyway. Car- uh, hey, Carl, are you there? I'm sorry. We lo- it sounded like we lost you for a second. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, maybe my voice trailed off. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, well, no, you, you, were, you were saying to Newcomb, I think that was the last thing we heard. Yeah. Well, I asked Nuke why he didn't write a book about his experience being one of the early, early blacks. And he said, anything that happened to me in baseball is going to go to the grave with me. In other words, he said, I'm not writing a book. I'm not wanting to talk about it. So I think he had a little struggle inside himself, um, being one of the early blacks and some of the indignities that he suffered right along the way Jackie had done early on. So I think that was a part of Nuke's uh, struggle uh, he wasn't real uh, easy with the press. 
Uh, he, he just didn't seem like he could handle himself uh, real easy in that uh, situation. Campanella was a lifesaver for Newcomb because he was a father figure to Newcomb. And, and on the field, he kept Newcomb in the right frame of mind, and he made a real pitcher out of Don Newcomb. He, he helped the whole pitching staff, but particularly Nuke. Uh, I think he, he gave a lot to Newcomb's career. Beautiful. I, I, Mike, I know you have a couple more questions, too. Well, I'd like to pick up with the Negro Leagues, if you don't mind, uh, Mr. Erskine. First of all, you know, I, I, f- I failed to mention that it was an honor meeting you, as well as Don Newcomb, at Coney Island at a Brooklyn Cyclones game. And along with yours and Mr. Newcomb's, I have three other autographs on the 1959-55 uh, pennant that they were given out that day, and it's one of my most treasured items uh, ever. So picking up with the Negro Leagues, as you say, you played with Jackie Robinson, Don Newcomb, uh, Jim Gilliam, Roy Campanella, etc. You played against Monty Irvin and Willie Mays. You knew of the career of Larry Doby, and I'm sure you saw Satchel Paige in action. As someone contemporaneous with the times, I'm curious as to your observations and your experience uh, as a rookie in 1948 and moving forward. But I'm extremely curious as to uh, leading up to 1948, the 10 years leading up to your 21st birthday, not in the major leagues, but uh, knowing of Negro Leaguers from afar, what what was your education of those players like? Well, you're you're mixing a little bit of uh, both baseball and the culture of the times. Uh, I grew up in a mixed neighborhood in Anderson, Indiana, a town of about 50,000 people. And uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, and I had some real good friends. One especially was Johnny Wilson. He was a black kid that I walked to school with, uh, 10, 12 years old. And so I grew up with Johnny. Uh, I was almost like a, a, a pre uh, pre experience to get ready for going to the Dodgers and meeting Jackie Robinson. Uh, and Jackie said to me one day, <laughs> "Doesn't this white and black thing bother you?" Uh, and it didn't. Well, from afar, before I got in the league, uh, America was truly divided. It's it's hard for people to go back, and it's hard to describe in the way it really was. But uh, black people had a space in life, and they they stayed there. The white people had a space in life, and they stayed there. So train stations had uh, black and white restrooms, and that was that was carried over into restaurants and other places. So America in the 40s and earlier was truly divided. And I grew up in an era where uh, that's the way the culture was. So the change that has happened since then has been truly amazing, but the race and the radicals still hang on. And uh, the bigots, let me tell you a quote from Jackie Robinson directly to me. He said to me one day, why didn't this black and white thing bother you? And I told him about my childhood growing up with my uh, best buddy, Johnny Wilson. And I said, Jackie, listen, everybody with a white skin 
is not your enemy. And he waited a pause for a minute, and then he said this, Carl, bigots come in all colors. Now, to me, that was very insightful, that he would recognize it takes both sides to, to whip this black and white challenge that we're still facing. And, and so Jackie had an in-depth feel that, that we've got to, both sides have got to make this work. It can't just be one side only. I thought that was really insightful of Jackie. Yeah, that that really is. I mean, he's such a, a fascinating character, and um, you know, I'm I'm curious in this regard. Speaking of, because I was just talking with somebody about Larry Doby and how um, how Larry, you know, had to had to deal with it in the American league and doesn't really get talked about as much regarding that. And the American league doesn't really celebrate anything regarding it. Uh, you know, and obviously I think there's, there's a whole different discussion in terms of what the, the future of the league, the league, uh, uh, the way it's divided uh, holds for us. But I, I'm curious what your, your observations uh, from afar of Larry Doby are, because it, it seems, you know, while, uh, while Jackie and, and all the black ball players in Brooklyn, Brooklyn ended up being just this this example of the integration of the melting pot. Um, where you know, and and I don't know enough about the story regarding Cleveland and what Cleveland was like at the time. Um, but but I I would feel like Larry Doby had to deal with with just as much, if not more, than what Jackie had to deal with, and doesn't really get spoken about it as much. Well, that's a side of the story that's not told a lot. You're right. But here's a part of that story that's also always been hidden, and I think Mr. Ricky should get enormous credit for what he did. After he got Jackie in place, and a very short time after that, Larry Doby was the second man in the list of Mr. Ricky's to bring into the major leagues. Jackie was first. And he got him placed. Then he could have brought Larry Doby to the Dodgers, but wisely, beyond wisdom, really, Mr. Ricky called Bill Veck of Cleveland, and he said, "Will you take Larry Doby on your roster so that the American League will be integrated about the same time as the National League?" Now think what that did. That avoided having a black league and a white league. If Jackie and Doby had been both on the Dodgers to start with, it would have been a black league and a white league. American League would have been the black league. To avoid that, Mr. Ricky gave up a Hall of Famer in, in Doby and had both leagues integrated about the same time. I, Mr. Ricky never got any credit for that. But I thought that was an amazing thing to do, uh, being in the business as Mr. Ricky was, to develop winning teams. He gave up a Hall of Famer to make both leagues integrated at the same time. And I've always kiddingly said, if we'd have had Doby in the outfield with with Snyder and Frillo, I'd have all those World Series rings instead of Yogi. <laughs> Right, exactly. And uh, Mike, I'm I'm just wondering if you have any follow up regarding uh, the Doby uh, stuff. Well, I would only add that you know he 
he made a name for himself first here with the Newark Eagles. Uh, having that team in such proximity to the Dodgers, no doubt the front office was aware of these players. Again, Monty Irvin, Larry Doby, uh, and several others. So I, I'm, I'm very, very curious to know more about Satchel Sage. You know, I knew Satchel Page slightly, but I never got to see him pitch. I uh, interviewed him a couple of times when I was doing some radio work, and he was a very interesting character. He he also had a very interesting way of explaining, uh, answering a question. Uh, But I never really got to see him uh, pitch, only what I heard about him. So I'm not a very good resource to talk about Satchel as a pitcher. Take it away, Sam. Well, I, no, and it, it's interesting. Um, just that those interviews must have been uh, remarkable. Uh, where, when when was that done? Like uh, when when were you uh, doing the radio? Well, I was doing a radio show in my hometown here of Anderson, Indiana, <clears throat> on a Saturday morning. Uh, one of the radio stations uh, was uh, so I did those where you call with a little patch on the on the phone and you can interview right over the phone. And I had several of those interviews, and a friend of mine has them now. I gave them to him because he later had his own radio show. Uh, but there's a uh, Satchel would have an interesting way of answering. He, I said, now, Satchel, tell me about your pitches. You've heard a lot of rumors about uh, all the pitch. Well, he said, Carl, now I had a little dab of this and a little dab of that. He'd, he'd give you these unusual answers uh, about his pitching. But uh, somewhere in this world, there's an interview that I did with Satchel Page. And I know the guy that I gave him to, and he may still have that one. Uh, we, Yeah, we got to hunt them down and try to get them, uh, you know, uploaded as well somewhere <laughs> well, I i'm sure I they did. have a lot of youtube hits well i this this kid was a baseball player in high school uh while i was pitching and he later had a radio show after i did so i gave him my tapes and uh and one of them is satchel page i haven't talked to this kid in years <laughs> but it makes me curious now i'm gonna yeah. call him and find out if he's still got them well, and you know, it's Satchel Page. Uh, who are what are some of the other notable people that you interview that that are also within those ranks? Well, you can name a lot of uh, big name players at that time, and I I had access, uh, fortunately, to talk to them uh, too. So I don't know on that true. Uh, Vic Lombardi was one of my interviews. Wow. Uh, uh, Happy Chandler, who was commissioner during our my playing days and who helped uh, the, the player. I was a player rep with the Dodgers uh, most of the time in Brooklyn. Uh, and uh, Happy Chandler encouraged the players to negotiate with the owners when TV money came in uh, to develop a, a decent pension plan. And we did that. And the players, representatives uh, of those that era, we didn't have a union uh, then, but uh, we did have a cordial agreement setting down with the owners 
and, uh, and and we had a good relationship with the owners. And so we got this pension plan set up that is now one of the best pension plans around. So that was that was then. It'd be different today, somewhat. But anyway, um, back to Satchel Page. One day in spring training, uh, Newcomb came in and he had a bottle of something, and he's he's announcing to the whole club in the clubhouse, "I got it! I got the answer." I said, "What's the answer, Nuke?" Well, Satchel Page gave me a bottle of his liniment. And he said, "If you use my limits, you'll pitch forever." So, <laughs> so I I got to try some of some of the liniment that Satchel Page used, and I guess he said it caused him to pitch so long. You know, well, he was actually pitched an inning in the major leagues when he was fifty some years old. I think I think, it, and Mike, you might also uh, be a good uh, a good person to tap on this. Um, I, I think he was 65 years old for the Kansas City Athletics. Is that correct? And he pitched like three innings of, of shutout baseball, no-hit baseball. Yeah, I couldn't remember the exact. Oh, I, think, uh, I think we lost. I think we lost Mike. But I'm going to have to look. I'm going to look that up right now. But but speaking of which, that's actually where I wanted to segue, Carl. Was you know he pitched at age 65. When was how how much did you pitch after you you left baseball? Like just just from habit. Well, I coached college baseball for twelve years after uh, after I retired from the big leagues. <clears throat> so I did throw a lot, throw a lot of batting practice uh, in those years afterwards. But um, yeah, so throwing was uh, <laughs> just a part of my makeup. Uh, I loved to throw. My dad had had a good arm. He played some of row baseball, and he loved to throw. So I must have caught some of that from him. That's great. And uh, we I just wanted to thank uh, both Rob Barnes and Michael Colon for joining us. They actually, up there, we actually have Michael Colon back. Uh, <laughs> Mike, um, I was just talking, we were just saying about uh, Satchel Page and how Satchel Page uh, pitched till he was 65, and I was about to look it up. Whether, but let's see if you know um, what. How old was Satchel Page when he pitched, and how many innings did he pitch? Well, his last season was 1965, but he pitched into his late 50s, I believe, up until age 58. Uh, his major league career was somewhat scattered. He played 48 and 49, skipped 50, played uh, from 51 through 53, and then and, and yeah. then again. Like I say, uh, several years later in 1965, but he's and I'll, I'll, so it was 1965, but he was age 59. That's right. Yeah, 58 to 59. Uh, but what I learned recently, uh, very recently, that although he's best known for being a pitcher with the Kansas City Monarchs, uh, that he was, uh, and I don't mean say this in negative uh, negative light, but he was such an individualist uh, that he played for, uh, you know, them and perhaps another team and even a third team in one day. Uh, he would hop around for the money. Uh, uh, it's not a question of loyalty. His loyalty was obviously to the Monarchs, but he would indeed venture out and play for many other different teams, like I say, for the pursuit of uh, a living and earning money. 
Well, and and Carl, I'll I'll go back to um, Larry Doby and Satchel Page, who were both on the 1948 Cleveland Indians. Um, and, and when you think about it, what, we're talking about Branch Rickey's experiment and considering uh, uh, what the story you just told about Larry Doby. It worked in the American League before it worked for the Dodgers. No, I didn't follow that, Sam. Oh Say no, I was saying that 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 what you were saying about the split of of uh, uh, talking to Bill Beck and, and getting him to sign Larry Doby for the Cleveland Indians. The Cleveland Indians, with Central Page on the team as well, won the World Series in 1948. So the experiment worked quicker for the American League than it did for the Dodgers. In oh, Bradford. I got you. Yes, okay, correct. But I, I think uh, you know, Mr. Rickey took a lot of heat for different reasons, but. Uh, it's hardly ever mentioned that he gave up a Hall of Famer to get both legs integrated at the same, nearly at the same time. I, I thought that was an, an amazing thing for him to do. Uh, Mr. Ricky was very competitive about getting winning teams put together and to, to sacrifice one of the teams he had searched, one of the players he had searched out and was at high on the list that he had. Uh, Jackie became the first one. But then to give up a Hall of Fame eventually player to integrate both leagues at the same time nearly, uh, I, I didn't think he ever got any credit for that. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a part of the story that I was unaware of. Um, I want to shift back to to uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, as well as just the lifestyles of, of, of the, the ball players, uh, Carl. And, you know, you guys were – you were talking about Bay Ridge and the Brooklyn being of the small towns. Um, I think that's what's so interesting about all of New York is the way that it is a collection of small towns, even Manhattan to an extent. But, but you know, so, of course, there were uh, most ball players it seemed, were married at the time. Um, if you could talk about some of the things that, that uh, all uh, ball players of all different types uh, did back then, in the 1950s, amongst town, uh, in New York City, Brooklyn, whether it's Brooklyn, Manhattan, or otherwise. Um, and, and, you know, what, what, what were some of the things both married and unmarried folks? Well, the era of that time, the culture of that time, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to go back and explain it uh, to be so believable. But uh, first of all, in baseball, there had never been a minimum salary. And in 1948, the year I was uh, came up to the Dodgers, uh, the, the owners had put in a minimum salary, $5,000 for the season. Now that seems ridiculous at this point in time. When, but there was no TV in those days in 48. At least TV was there, but it hadn't really bloomed yet. And so that was one of the, the significant things. And. Uh, I talked to a young player not long ago, and I, he said, "What did you make your first year?" I said, five thousand. He thought I meant five thousand a month. <laughs> I said, "No, no, <laughs> that, that was the minimum amount." The other thing about uh, that era, uh, if I don't digress too far here, uh, the one thing that I think Sports Illustrated about four or five years ago. They did an article on the players of the 1950s and what they did in the off-season. And the stories were all similar because I read these and I thought, gee, this is exactly what I, is what I did. 
we worked in the off season, and I made fifty dollars a week, fifty dollars a week uh, for a, uh, a lumber company. I delivered lumber and uh, framed up houses, roofed houses <laughs> in the winter time. But the players of that era all worked in the winter time. Usually, it's some kind of a sales job that was brief and through the holidays season. But uh, that it's hard to explain that to uh, current players who uh, the culture of the game is so different now with free agency and multi-year contracts and so forth. But uh, to go back in in time uh, and try to recreate it for somebody. Uh, I don't think it's, it's it's hard to really do that. It certainly is. It's, it is very hard to understand. It, would you go out to uh, to Broadway shows, or was it just because of, of the lifestyle, because of the way uh, the salaries were, was it just hard to really enjoy the New York perks? No, I don't think so. I think we did go to a lot of Broadway shows, and we did go out eating a lot in some of the great restaurants in New York. Uh, that was our, it was Betty and I and our my two little boys. Uh, we used to go to a place called Singapore. It was, uh, it, I think it was on Fifth Avenue, and it was upstairs. But it was a Chinese restaurant, and it was all, the decor was all uh, very uh, oriental, and, and uh, it was really an experience. My boys to this day, who are, <laughs> my boys now are in their 70s, <laughs> If you could believe that, but uh, that was one of our big experiences in New York was Broadway plays and uh, fine restaurants. So even on salaries of that day, uh, we had some uh, some good. Sometimes uh, the club would recommend, and we get a break or two going to certain places. Uh, we didn't pay the high prices always, so that was a break for us. Now, maybe this is too much insider information I'm asking you, but who were the curfew breakers? Maybe, may, I'm not sure, you know, what the, like, uh, the, you know, may, maybe you're not allowed to tell me this, but who, who were some of the curfew breakers uh, on the team? Well, fortunately, I don't recall that we had any real habitual uh, breakers of the rules, but uh, one example in Chicago at the Stevens Hotel, it's now a Hilton, um, about three in the morning, Charlie Dressen always stayed out late with his friend, having a few drinks and all. So he came in about three a.m. and he got on the elevator, and uh, the elevator boy said, "Boy, Mister uh, Dressen, you got some fine players on your team. Uh, look, see this baseball here. I just, I just took three of your players upstairs, and they signed this ball for me." <laughs> so. So he didn't know he was squealing on three players who stayed out past curfew. Oh boy! The next day, dressed and fight of three hundred bucks apiece. But uh, we we really didn't have any bad actors, uh, heavy drinkers, uh, or that wasn't anything we had to deal with. Fortunately, mm-hmm. now one of the reasons that's true is that we had a captain whose name was Harold Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee was a little older than the rest of us. He'd been the big leagues a little before most of us. And Pee Wee had this uh, makeup of talking down slow. He didn't yell, scream. 
embarrass anybody in the clubhouse. But he could he could burn your shirts off, shirt, shorts off, by just giving you a look. But he he was a good captain, a good pro, and everybody respected Pee Wee. And if the curfew was one o'clock, most of our guys made it. We had very few fines or guys uh, breaking the rules. So that's that's kind of my answer to what it was like uh, with guys uh, staying out too late or uh, breaking other rules. Pee Wee just had everybody kind of uh, in his own professional way uh, yeah. had their respect. Mike, I know you had a, a follow-up question. Well, we're going to put Mr. Erskine's last response to the test. Mr. Erskine, 1955, you guys win the World Series. Take us into the celebration at the Bossert Hotel. Well, we had one. It was a big one. Of course, Brooklyn didn't sleep that night. and Maybe for a <laughs> week later, they didn't sleep. Uh, it was a, a big celebration. And, of course, the hero of the day and the year was Johnny Padres, who had just shut out the Yankees for the Game 7 and bring the finally bring the championship to Brooklyn. And so it was a, a happy night, a big one. Now, uh, Jack Lascouli was a sports guy on, uh, on television. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, he called, or uh, Frank Scott was a, a, an agent, and he called Frank Scott and he said, go over and get a hold of uh, uh, Duke, Snyder, and Erskine. And... Uh, we want to talk to him. So he called us and he said, look, we want Johnny Padres on the morning show. And we want you two guys to be sure he gets there. So they gave us the charge to get Padres corralled after a night of champagne and, and dancing. So we got Johnny Padres up in the morning to go to the, you know, that show was on about 7 a.m. in the morning, so Johnny was still really buzzed up by the time we got him to the Today Show. <laughs> and, and Johnny, who was not a braggart at all, but he was still buzzed up enough that on that show that morning, he sounded like a different person. Yeah, I'll bring the Yankees on again. I'll get them today, too. If you want. If they don't believe I beat them, I'll beat them again. <laughs> oh, man. So, he was off the wall, but we got him there, and uh, Jack Lascouli had a, had his hands full. <laughs> I One story that I read about Padres in the Walter O'Malley book was that the night before the World Series, and I guess, was he staying in the Bozzard Hotel? Was he staying right in that hotel? A few of us stayed there occasionally. It was, yeah, but I couldn't answer that. I'm not sure right. where he where stayed you there. That, yeah, that just happened that was a hotel that was used some by the Dodgers players on short uh, on short visits, uh, but uh, that was the spot the Dodgers picked for the celebration that night. So I, I read that the night before the World the Game Seven of the World Series, um, I think it was Walter. It was actually O'Malley, and he was like down there waiting to check to to make sure the players have got had gotten back in there. Uh, and, like, Padres taps uh, Mr. O'Malley on the shoulder and says, you know, it's real late, boss. You should get to bed. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it could be true. <laughs> well, what is true on the bus ride over from Brooklyn? We we met at Evans Field uh, and got on the bus to go uh, across the bridge into Manhattan and up to the to, to Yankee Stadium. Uh, on the way up there, Padres, as I said, was not a, a braggart of any kind. He was young. He was only in his second season uh, in the big leagues. But on the bus ride over there, he was all pumped up. He's pitching the seventh game. And he said, he told everybody on the bus, get me one run. That's all I'm going to need. One run today. Get me. Well, we got him two. <laughs> but, but he was all pumped up. And he was, I don't know, psyching himself up for the game or whatever. But he said, you get me get me a run, fellas. That's all I'm going to need today. <laughs> And it turned out that it was about right. So what do you remember about the parade? About the what? Uh, The parade. Oh, the parade. Oh, gee. I'd always seen these these, uh, parades in Manhattan, uh, New York, uh, all the confetti coming down. (laughs) And by golly, it's true. We were right in the middle of one of those. Open open cars, uh, parading through the streets, and lots and lots of people lined the sidewalks on each side. And uh, you know, it was more important. And, and, I, and I know this sounds uh, uh, a little made up. It's not. The players were so thrilled to bring the the fans who had for what 75 years waited for a a world series in brooklyn and the team actually was more thrilled to bring it to the fans than we were for ourselves now it sounds trite but it it was true we had we'd seen these fans begging for a win uh we couldn't beat the yankees in seven games finally when that happened uh, there, there was a thing among the players that we finally produced. <laughs> it finally brought the ring, uh, ring to. And I remember the day we got the rings too. Uh, we were all like little boys, Jackie Robinson, all the rest. When we got those World Series rings, so. Do you do you still wear it? Well, I don't wear it a lot. I keep it in the lockbox because that <laughs> ring is worth a lot of money. <laughs> I've heard seventy-five thousand. Uh, oh my God! Uh, up for uh, Pee Wee and a couple guys sold their rings at one time, and uh, I get I get calls from collectors offering fifty, sixty thousand for uh, a Brooklyn ring. So if it went on, uh, if it went out there on bids someplace, it's hard to tell what the top would be. Yeah, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's priceless, right? Um, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's just fascinating. There's so many different directions to go, and uh, but you know, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time up, um, Mike. I was wondering before I, I segue to the last word, I was wondering if you had a follow up to about the parade. I will offer this anecdote, Mr. Erskine. Uh, at Barclay Centers, where the Brooklyn basketball Nets play, they recovered the flagpole, one of the two flagpoles that existed at Ebbets Field, and had a 
uh, a dedication and ceremony. And at the time, Brooklyn Borough President Marty Markowitz was in attendance, and I managed to sneak over to him and ask him, what about painting a blue line along the parade route, the Brooklyn Dodgers parade route of 55? And he told me, very matter of fact, uh, this ends that. Three words, period. This ends that. And I I was rather saddened to hear that. So I I would just say, uh, you know, your anecdotes are, are just a treasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Erskine. Well, thank you for all these years uh, have passed, and yet the Dodgers in Brooklyn have a place in history, baseball history especially, uh, that I'm amazed at. Uh, During this lockdown that we've had, my mail has increased by three times because people (laughs) locked up, want to write as they once did as kids uh, to players. And uh, that era has breath, uh, had life breathed uh, into it, uh, and it's still alive. That amazes me. But uh, Brooklyn fans, uh, Brooklyn residents are all over the world now. They're scattered. So the postmarks on my mail come from a lot of places, but it's mostly from Brooklyn-related, and, uh, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and, Mike, I'm going to go back to you uh, with your last word one more time, not uh, specifically if you wanted to ask Carl uh, anything having to do with the lifestyle of Brooklyn at the time, you know, you being being uh, right in the thick of it anyway. Uh, the lifestyle. Uh, you know what? Being a toddler in the 70s and turning 13 in the 1980s, I was raised under, for the most part, under those old school rules, for lack of a better word. Uh, So I understand somewhat the mentality going on there. Uh, So as far as the lifestyle, you know, as a researcher of this borough, an amateur researcher of this borough, that's all fine and well. Sam, what I'd rather ask, and this somewhat helps you out in your research. When Larry McTell came on board, you know, there were issues with radio, night baseball, and competition in that regard with the Giants and Yankees and the uh, gentlemen's agreement that they had amongst each other about not broadcasting radio games and whatnot. And Larry McTell's argument was, all we, the Dodgers, have is this borough of Brooklyn, whereas the other two teams have New York on their chest and have exposure uh, to a lot more terrain than, say, Brooklyn does. And Larry McPhail uh, followed through with his ideas. Mr. Erskine, by the time you're with the club and through the mid-50s, do you now sense that Brooklyn has taken on the... uh, the allure of being America's team following Larry McVale's vision. Well, Mike, you've got some great insights there. And and I, I feel like tapping into them because it was always feeling in the early years with me in Brooklyn from 1948 and then into the 50s. Uh, Brooklyn was a, kind of an orphan borough 
Uh, it didn't have a lot of uh, glitz, uh, like Broadway and uh, uptown New York. Uh, it didn't have much political clout, and uh, it was just kind of a tag-along borough. But the era between 1947 and 1957, that uh, little more than a decade right there, so many things happened that brought Brooklyn into the limelight, and you can put the spotlight on Jackie Robinson, who came to the club in 47, and a team that had been mediocre most of the time in its history became one of the dominant teams in baseball. Uh, we didn't win a lot of World Series. Uh, in fact, we only won one in that stretch. But we were National League champions six times. Uh, and that was basically after World War II and uh, the rebuilding of the teams. And Mr. Rickey was putting together the team that's been known as the Boys of Summer. But the centerpiece to that was Jackie. Uh, he brought new energy. And he brought new spirit. Uh, he lifted the whole franchise, uh, not just the black and white thing, but his play, his exciting base running, uh, his articulate way of uh, expressing himself. Uh, it was it was just a, a magic touch for the Dodgers. And so that era, I think, is the golden era. <laughs> uh, not only did integration come, but... Uh, Lights were new, uh, television was new, uh, jet planes were new, uh, East Coast, West Coast was uh, was the first time. So from four, 47 to 57, I claim that as the golden era of baseball. It really is, and it, it's interesting. In that exposure, you guys never faced any other team but the New York Yankees, who didn't integrate until 1955 when you finally beat them. Um, and, and to leave us with that, if, if you could talk about, again, you know, we, we've talked, uh, of course, incessantly about the New York Yankees on this podcast in terms of being the villain. But in that exposure to the country and what you're talking about, you only faced one team. And that one team, it, it, the dichotomy of the way it all broke down in the exposure to the country is also fascinating and, and one of the reasons why it still breathes so much life. Well, there's an experience that goes with that 55 team and a 55 win. It was in Yankee Stadium that Padres uh, won the ball game 2 to nothing, And we go up through the uh, runway to the Dodger or the uh, visitors' uh, clubhouse. Uh, now, you've all watched celebrations on TV, a football, basketball. The championship is always loud. It's always a lot of champagne. Uh, you, you can picture it yourself. So you would expect that was going to happen with this team that finally won the World Series against the Yankees. But let me tell you what really happened. And I was only told this by a rookie named Roger Craig, who was a rookie on, in that, uh, on that team that year. When we went up into the Fisher's Clubhouse, it was quiet. There was a, almost a feeling of reverence of some kind. And Roger Craig told me not long ago, said, Carl, I saw something that uh, I couldn't believe. Pee-wee had tears in his eyes. 
Jackie had tears in his eyes. You had tears in your eyes. Hodges, too. This team that finally conquered the Yankees and brought the pennant to the Dodgers in Brooklyn, there was an emotional experience going on for just a short time before the champagne popped and the celebration got loud. And I remember that moment. It was a very reverent time. And I do remember tearing up thinking about we now own the championship. That's never been written about. It's never been exposed. I didn't think anybody knew about it. But Roger Craig said, I saw the boys of summer with tears in her eyes. That's great. Yeah. That's, it, it, it's a beautiful scene, and it's a beautiful sight, and it just reminds you in many ways you never – grow up you you have to I always like to say you you know we all just have to become professional children and in moments of that and even watching the latest last night I, I watched the the Nationals response it's so interesting because you know from history you know it you know from watching this game and uh, it, it seems like a lot of players play the game but haven't done uh, don't watch it like like you'd think uh, in this day and age but you still know from history that you have to hold on and not show your emotion until that very moment that that strike or that, that batted ball goes into the glove. And um, it's, it's so real. And to think that literally up until now, it was, we basically had other than strikes, we had baseball every day of our summer lives and every day of our lives for basically six to eight months out of the year. And um, it's just not only is it beautiful talking to you, but it's beautiful talking to you under the setting of, of a very strange way that baseball is coming back. But we, we took it for granted. And I greatly appreciate you bringing uh, uh, so much nuance to, to the tale, so much nuance to the era. Uh, and and also so much nuance to the game that we love and hold so dear, and and we want to see continue on the pace that we we are used to it uh, from here for uh, from here to eternity. I'm choking up here. Campanella captured exactly what you have alluded to when Roy said, "To play this game of baseball, you got to have a lot of little boy in you." <laughs> he was absolutely on target because I think every one of us who were privileged to play in the major league, the little boy in us was there all the time. It never went away. Never the magic of saying, I played in the major leagues. I got to play in the World Series. That, that to me, at 90, almost 94 years old, I'm still 12 years old. <laughs> I like that. I love it. And, and that's, I think there's no better way to end than uh, on that note. Uh, I appreciate you helping to remind us to, to just take, take it easy. Uh, You know, go through this life with, with a a child's reverence for what this, this world has to offer. Um, And so Carl, uh, as always, I thank you for joining us today on the Bedford Sullivan podcast. Uh, and, and Mike, thank you for as well joining us. 
Thank you Mike, for having me. Mike, it's glad to speak with you, Mike, and thank you for the fans have always been important to me, and they still are today. I answer all my mail, uh, and I appreciate the fans that remind me of things that I <laughs> probably already almost forgotten. Sir, on behalf of Brooklyn, your kindness, your availability, your affability, your accessibility to fans is an example to all. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. This is what we do this for. We'll catch you next time. Take care.